Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. You know, one of the great things about working at Beeson Divinity School is that we are honored to have very special scholars and guests who come to our school on a regular basis. One of those is here today, Dr. Robert Benny. He is the Jordan Trexler Professor of Religion Emeritus at Roanoke College in Virginia. He's a Lutheran scholar who holds a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago, Uh, He has written so many books and contributed in so many ways to the whole issue of public theology. One of his most recent books we want to talk about a little bit is entitled Good and Bad Ways to Think About Religion and Politics. Now, before we get into that topic, Dr. Benny, let me welcome you to the podcast and ask you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are and where you came from. Okay. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for the gracious uh, greeting that I've had here. Uh, I've heard much about Beeson over the years. And of course, we have personal connections now with our associate pastor at uh, St. John Lutheran in Roanoke. Yes, Miles Miles Hickson. 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 Hello, Miles. I hope you're listening. (laughs) He will listen to to this, no (laughs) doubt. And of course, uh, a long, long friendship with uh, Gerald McDermott, who's now the Anglican chair. So uh, it feels like I'm very familiar with Beeson from from, from uh, all those connections. So thank you, and thank you for doing this uh, podcast with me. Well, I was born in 1937, uh, which was the lowest birth rate for many, many years. So I've oh. always been in small classes. <laughs> and I was born in the depth of the Depression. That yeah. was partly the, the small birth rate. But then I had the experience of growing up in a small town in Nebraska in the post-war years where you had – the emergence and expansion of, of religion, where mm-hmm. the churches were full, the GIs were back having babies. And, and in the small town that I grew up in, you were either Lutheran or Catholic, and all the churches were big. <laughs> <laughs> and there was an incredible coherence of culture at that point. It wasn't fragmented like it is today. And I was raised by parents who had been uh, brought up in the Depression years. So you had... Um, Frugality, no yeah. complaints, <laughs> fairly low expectations. So, but a strong work ethic. Well, a strong work ethic, and um, one of the amazing things about my life is that we didn't have high expectations. So every phase of my life has outrun my expectations. So, in a memoir, memoir that I'm starting to write, uh, I entitled it uh, "Beyond All." low expectations. <laughs> so it, it was a wonderful time to, to grow up and uh, had a powerful religious experience. Uh, grew, up, grew up conventional Lutheran, Sunday school. We used to get perfect attendance, bars, and mine went all the way down my knees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I was a gardener for the most prestigious woman in town. She was the president of Nebraska Women's Clubs and became president of the American Women's Clubs. I was her gardener, and one day I was uh, under her kitchen window, and the window was open. And uh, she was talking to a friend on the phone, and she said, um, I perked up when my name was called, and she said, yes, that Bobby Benny would make a fine pastor. Ah. Whoa. <laughs> you never was, thought about that before. I wanted to be anything else but a pastor. <laughs> so I knew it was the voice of God. <laughs> what had befuddled all my – I wanted to be an athlete and a coach. That's what was honored in our town. 
But uh, I, I knew from that moment that I was called, and it was very – never doubted. And so tell us a little bit about the kind of church you grew up in, your parents, what, what your formation mm-hmm. as, a, as a Lutheran. Well, it was Grace Lutheran, which was the Americanized Lutheran tradition. Across the town was the Missouri Synod Lutheran, which was much more doctrinally rigid, much more ethnic. We were less ethnic and a kind of a mild pietism, not sharply doctrinal. But because everybody was a Christian in town, (laughs) you went to church and everybody that I grew up with went to church. And so my parents insisted. My parents were deeply convicted Christians, but they couldn't express it. They had not been educated. and uh, But in a way, my dad was a great evangelist because he would encourage the, the one of the few boys in town who didn't go to church for me to go invite them to church. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. And uh, it, was, um, it was a fairly homogenous culture. Yeah. And so I was ready when I got done with college to go see some different part of the world with different kinds of people. But the second thing that happened uh, after uh, that call was that I decided I had to go to the nearby Lutheran College where you began to prepare for the ministry. And there was a seminary in the town, Fremont, Nebraska. It was Midland College. And so I went off there and they were very – it was a robust Christian college at that Mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. And a lot of religion courses, a faculty that was supportive, a lot of pre-theological students. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, we had four required courses in religion. And the final year, we had a brand new PhD from Hartford. And uh, he came to Midland and uh, had us read Reinhold Niebuhr. Ah, and most of the kids couldn't fathom. <laughs> this would have been in the 50s, the 1950s? This is about 59, yeah. 58, yeah. 59. So Niebuhr was still active and thriving. Very active, yeah. a major public theologian. Yeah. And uh, we read his uh, a, an interpretation of Christian ethics, yeah. and I was off and running. Yeah. I was so excited that I took honors courses with this professor in Kierkegaard and more of uh, Niebuhr. So I so well-armed by my immersion and these fairly heavy thinkers for undergraduates that I won a Fulbright and a Woodrow Wilson and then went off to Germany on a Fulbright to Erlangen, which is a strongly confessional Lutheran faculty in Erlangen, a little bit north of Munich. And it had a very real history of Lutheran theology. Mm-hmm. And Paul Althaus, you probably yes, know that name. Yes, of course, the great Luther scholar. And Werner Ehlert. Yes. And... Uh, Wilhelm Maurer was a Reformation scholar, but my favorite was a guy called Walter Kunert, who taught Christian ethics and social ethics. He'd been under house arrest in the Nazi time and was something of a hero of the next generation because of his resistance. It wasn't like Bonhoeffer was willing to put down his life, but he got in trouble enough that he was under house arrest. And he taught Lutheran social ethics, and that really got me into this social ethics side of things, and uh, convinced me after my awakening, intellectual awakening at Midland and then going to the Fulbright that probably it wasn't the pastoral ministry. This eventually led you to Chicago, the University of it Chicago, did. and it a PhD. Did. And what did you work on? I, it was a field called Ethics and Society, mm-hmm. and a fairly um, famous man at that point was named Gibson Winter, mm-hmm. and he was my advisor. And he'd become more and more disenchanted with American life as time went on. And so I was kind of a rebel from my own doctor father because I I didn't share that kind of darkness about his interpretation of American society. But then after I was on my dissertation year, 
Lord knows uh, they needed a ethics professor at the new Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago, which was merging a number of ethnic background seminaries. One of them was in Rock Island, Illinois, and that was the Augustana Synods, which was the Swedish tradition. And so I taught there for two years before the new LSTC, Lutheran School of Theology Chicago, was built in Chicago in 1967 and opened in 1967. And it was the plan of the Lutheran Church in America to place a seminary right in the midst of a great university. Ah. Most of our seminaries were not. Yeah. And they had either the great fortune or misfortune <laughs> to plant it right there where the 60s took hold. Yeah. Whoa. Now talk about the 60s because you lived through the 60s. So did I. I was yeah. a bit younger. I was in my teenage years during the 60s. But I knew a lot of things were swirling around. Our, our society was in convulsion in some, some ways that uh, we still feel the effects of that. What was your experience of the 60s? How did it change you? First of all, um, I was already on the social ethics track, ethics of society, when I arrived at the University of Chicago. Got in that field and that's – I believe the 60s are from 65 to 75. Up until 65, you're still the period of what I call liberal idealism, where you had Kennedy and the White House. You have still a lot of coherence in American politics. And you had this great optimism that America was going to take up its major problems and solve them, the prime one being race. Mm. Of course, Martin Luther King was at his height in those early uh, uh, liberal idealist periods, the great march, uh, the great speech in Washington, his movement to Chicago. Uh, it, it, there was great uh, positive feeling that r racism could be uh, overcome and integration was the word of the day. Mm. But there was also a great movement to restore the cities who were in mm. decay. Mm -hmm. So urban renewal and community organization was really hot and heavy. And uh, then urban ministry and the church is taking up their role in the civil rights movement and in uh, renewing the cities. That was really big. And so I went off to a little sleepy seminary in uh, Rock Island, Illinois, and took the, the students by storm, <laughs> if I do say so myself, uh, because I was chock full of it and I want to get it out. <laughs> There were kind of 35 in the senior class, and 33 of them wanted to go into urban ministry. Wow. <laughs> you were effective, I would say. <laughs> well, it was, but it was, it was also misbegotten because 33 of them were not fit for urban ministry. But anyway, uh, one of those became our pastor then when we moved to Chicago. But anyway, it, that was an exhilarating time and uh, a very exciting time. But then from 65 onward, that's when you get the riots in the cities. You get the heavy involvement in the Vietnam War. You get the student protests, the protest movement. You get after King's assassination, but even before his assassination, he being outflanked by much more radical blacks, Stokely Carmichael, Rap Brown, a whole and and what people don't remember is they pretty much stole the thunder from from mm -hmm. and Malcolm X from from King and they denounced King and his pacifism and yeah. his gentle approach so to say to to overcoming racism and uh, it was pretty big, began to be pretty scary. The other big issue, of course, at that time was the Vietnam War, and these, in a way, were merged as social issues for a lot of people, weren't they? Well, King then becomes anti-war and he becomes anti-poverty. Mm -hmm. uh, he had focused basically the poor on racism. people's campaign. Yeah, that's right. So these things begin to amalgam and they turn more to the left, more radical, as particularly uh, as. Uh, Violence increases and turbulence increases. 
I was very much on the left or what you'd call the liberal idealist in, the, in, in my first few years of teaching. But then everything turned in a radical direction and black power became a very scary kind of thing. And uh, I went on a couple of anti-war marches in Washington and found out that the vast majority of marchers wanted us to be defeated. They mm. were cheering for the Viet Cong. Mm. And then I saw all sorts of cultural decadence uh, on the marches too, mm -hmm. where uh, a lot of marijuana, a lot of wine, a lot of sex. Uh, Sexual sex, revolution was uh, happening. Oh, big yeah. time. Yeah. And I really had to reassess whether that – I had I had got all the ego strokes I had from being on the left. Yeah. <laughs> and then decided I couldn't do, couldn't do it anymore, honestly. Uh, I was so out of sync with myself, what I really believed and what I was posing and posturing. You know, you get that sharp enough and you either – continue being a fraud <laughs> or you finally gain some integrity and you know it's going to cost you. Yeah. Norman Podoritz uh, wrote a book called Breaking Ranks and Chicago is a very liberal seminary and the yeah. students were liberal and to become a neocon at that yeah. point was not easy. Now your pilgrimage in some ways tracks or parallels that of uh, two other people I have known have had a great influence on me. They're neither one in this world anymore, but their influence stays on. One is Richard John Newhouse. Yes who was, of course, the founding editor of First Things and the Institute for Religion and Public Life, and also Tom Oden, the great Methodist scholar. Mm. Uh, you knew both of those, didn't you? I did. Uh, Tom was at the Chicago Theological Seminary and was way on the left. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, Richard Newhouse was a friend for many years, and we were all on the left until the early 70s. And that was when the neocon... But Richard was very interesting. One of the things that really changed him was he couldn't persuade the left to be interested in, in um, nascent life, the protection yes, of nascent exactly. life. Yeah. And uh, he broke with them on that grounds and then gradually became an apologist for democratic capitalism, the combination of democracy and capitalism. And so did Michael Novak make that move. And they were very uh, encouraging to me. I was thinking the same things, but to, to hear these guys writing in support of this kind yeah. of project was, was very encouraging to me. So so I girded up the loins <laughs> and wrote a book uh, called The Ethic of Democratic Capitalism, A Moral Reassessment, in which I defended the combination of democracy and capitalism against the vast majority of religious intellectuals who th thought that socialism was the only option for a serious Christian. Of course, along the way, Richard also became a Roman Catholic. He uh, did. A very... Uh, I would say uh, enthusiastic one. <laughs> he did. He did. We used to, uh, you know, say he's 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 more Catholic than the Pope, but he loved the Pope. He knew the Pope, Pope John Paul II, and would often talk about that. You haven't been tempted in that direction, or have you? Uh, not really tempted. Um, I've had some influence in Lutheran circles. I was part of the group that broke off from the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America to start the North American Lutheran Church. <laughs> And uh, I've written as a Lutheran to Lutherans and to others. And um, one practical assessment would be that uh, I would have no voice in Catholicism. Hmm. Now Richard <laughs> knows the Cardinal <laughs> of New York who introduces him to the, the Pope. Well, that, that's one place to start. And another friend of mine, Robert Wilkin, had connections that made him somebody yeah. within within Catholicism. I would be nobody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but that's kind of an egoist way of looking at things. But uh, more deeply, I think the Lord placed me where he placed me 
in order to be a kind of bear the Lutheran witness in the Church Catholic. And I think there's still mm -hmm. things that Lutherans bear that are worth hearing and that the ecclesial embodiment of those things is really worth fighting for. So that's a small church, but I know and trust the leadership. And it's been good, a, very, mm -hmm. a relief to not be fighting a rearguard action against a church that's liberalizing, but to be in one where you really feel comfortable. Yeah. Let's talk about your, your fairly recent book, 2010, Good and Bad Ways to Think About Religion and Politics, mm -hmm. because some of these emphases and thrusts that we've been discussing in your life, I think, flow into that book and into your perspective on politics and democracy at this moment in our, in our country. Say a little bit about that. Well, we're going to have longer lectures about that today, but I wrote the book out of kind of an indignation. The, 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 the books that I've written either are efforts driven by the idea that I can do better, <laughs> not being satisfied that with a text, you know, yep. you're, you're teaching, so you write one yourself. That was one set of books that I've written, but the other set are when I really get indignant when I think there's really bad thinking going on. Ah. And uh, one of those had to do with capitalism. But uh, another one of these had to do with religion and politics. Right before 2010, when I published the book, there was a whole spate of books that were ringing the alarm that religion is getting mixed too mixed up with politics. We're close to theocracy. Damon Linker, who was mm -hmm. a, yep. who was a friend of Newhouse, and then turned on him. If you remember that story, I do. you do. Yes. Well, anyway, he wrote. Theocracy, theocrats, where he argued that a small cabal of Catholic intellectuals are going to take over America. Now, can you think of anything crazier than that, that that could happen? But there was a whole spate of books warning about uh, uh, religion and politics and that religion should remain private. And particularly the real hard haters of Christianity like uh, Dawkins and, and others, these neo-atheists uh, really wanted to scrub religion out of political public life. Yeah. And of course Richard's most famous book, The Naked Public Square, anticipated that. Yeah. That but, was way back in the eighties, yes, but you're right. Yes. And so uh, there was quite a move, what I call separationism, which which was trying to argue that religiously based morality had no role in the public realm. And it and they mistook the separation of church and state for the separation of religion and politics, yeah. which is quite a different thing. Uh, I mean, we all admire the separation of church and state because it frees the church. The founders in the First Amendment all remembered the state churches of Europe yeah. in which the church was controlled by the state. And so in the Second Great Awakening, they believe this is a blessing, greatest blessing since the closing of the New Testament, <laughs> that the church is set free to evangelize yes. and no longer controlled by the state. So uh, we, we admire the, the separation of church and state. But now that's been pressed to mean uh, in many sectors and fearfully maybe in the Supreme Court that that means the separation of religion and politics. Religion is consigned to the private realm of Sunday and your private life and you should not express it, exercise it publicly. And so the, the, and what I'm going to say in the lecture further is that now has become taken up what, by what one could call secular progressives who are about 21 percent of the, the, the population but they're in charge. Mm -hmm. They're in charge of education. They're in charge of the media. They're in charge of entertainment. They're in charge of a lot of heights of culture, but they're not in charge of politics. Mm. So I wrote a little article, thank God for politics, <laughs> because politicians have to be responsive to their constituencies, and their constituency are often not 
uh, secular progressives. But in, at any rate, you get uh, at this uh, uh, the secular progressives, you get now, it seems to me, an atmosphere where it's um, embarrassing uh, and, and uh, uh, not only embarrassing, but maybe even improper for people to articulate religious reasons for this or that public policy uh, or religiously based moral reasons for this or that. And I find this uh, pretty pervasive in society mm -hmm. now. And then Christians then self-censor. I find that going on in so many church-related institutions. Mm -hmm. You no longer talk about the motivations of people for founding the school, no longer talk about the public relevance of the religious tradition and the life of the institution, the social service institution, colleges, universities. There's a huge pressure to, to privatize mm -hmm. your religious convictions. And I find that even more worrisome than that early yeah. spate of books. Uh, so, and, and so some Christians have felt completely defeated by this. Yeah. And, and uh, so you get uh, radical orthodoxy saying the ball game's over. Rod Dreher was interpreted that way in the yeah. Benedict option. But when pressed, he really, he really doesn't believe we should disengage with politics. But he, for the moment, he says we had a strategic retreat into focusing on getting the churches act together, yeah. a stronger community, a counterculture. I think, you know, among evangelicals, especially younger evangelicals, there's a kind of suspicion that maybe uh, the Christian faith uh, has been uh, subverted or at least tempted uh, by the secular political movement. And, and for evangelicals often, it's to the right, mm -hmm. uh, maybe even the far right in some cases. Others, of course, the people you've been talking about and working with, mostly to the left. Mm -hmm. But uh, – what is is there a distinctive Lutheran way to think about religion and politics? Yes, I think there is, and uh, classically spoken, it's, it's called uh, the two ways that God reigns. Sometimes it's called two kingdoms doctrine, but I don't like that language because it sounds spatial. And the two ways that God reigns is a very important Lutheran distinction between the law and the gospel. And if you think of history and politics on a horizontal plane, this is God's left hand that governs this plane. And that's the realm of the law in which God sustains certain orders like family, marriage and family, like the state, like the church, uh, like economic life, work. And we're all caught up in those, and they can. There can be some gains, and there can be some losses in history. It's a it's a conflict between God and the devil, and that's where uh, politics operates. Uh, but politics are non-redemptive, and everything on that law reign is non-redemptive. Say what you mean by that. Politics are non-redemptive. That is, they don't save human souls, and Lutherans of all traditions, I think emphasize the radicality and, and universality of the gospel, that in the gift of God in Christ, we do nothing. We receive. Mm -hmm. That's the gospel. And politics is our work. Mm. <laughs> and, and so Lutherans have always been skeptical of religionized politics or po politicized religion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so there's a strong guard against uh, um, uh, political messianism. Yeah. And uh, now Lutherans failed in Germany when you get the rise of Hitler. But a lot of Lutherans knew exactly what was going on and denounced Hitler because he promised mess there's a messianic role for politics in the Nazi movement like there was in, in Marxism and, and uh, yeah. the, the Bolshevik movement. So there's, there's a very uh, reluctance to give any redemptive significance to 
to um, politics, but a great guarding of the universal radicality of the gospel, which I think is extremely important so that we don't mix the gospel, which is a gift of God in Christ, with our work. So that's one important and, – and that also has a lot of realism about what can happen historically. Uh, uh, Americans have been informed uh, very heavily by a reformed notion of the kingdom of God in America. Mm. <laughs> Richard Niebuhr's famous book, uh, The yeah. Kingdom of God in America. The reason I wrote the book, The Paradoxical Vision, was I read a very famous article by Mark Knoll who called for a, a Lutheran take on public theology. Yeah. <laughs> you remember that in First I Things? I do. And he said memorably that Reformed Christianity tends to have a strong doctrine of personal sanctification and they apply that to history and politics. Mm. And Lutherans have never really made that kind of leap. So they, Luther distinguished sharply between justification and sanctification. Yes. And, and so uh, uh, I was inspired to write the Lutheran take on yeah. public theology by Mark yeah. Knoll. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, almost out of time, but I want to ask you, you, a lot of listeners to this podcast are pastors, they're workers in churches. If you could speak to pastors about how they can most faithfully navigate the political landscape today, what would you say? Well, I would say to avoid um, any direct endorsements or avoid getting too close to any political party or political ideology because you want the gospel to be universal. You don't want to so closely identify the gospel with any political movement that that you lose the transcendence of the gospel. So, so you really got to keep those distinct. And uh, But in the book, I argue that the movement from core Christian beliefs, things that you preach about, and political options and political choices is a very complex and jagged one, moving from the core to – and that Christians have goodwill and intelligence often disagree with every step from the core over to politics. But that's not without limits. That is, there are some politics that are so wicked, the pastor has to say no, no. The church has to say no. But more likely, I argue that uh, while most policies are ambiguous and there's a jagged and uncertain mode moving from the core to the to political choice, there are certain Christian convictions and values that should make their way over to to get a, a, a common Christian witness. Mm. Now, probably would be challenged on this <laughs> immediately, but I say there are four of them. And the top one is religious liberty. Mm. All Christians ought to be concerned about the free exercise of religion because it's under fire in many ways now. <clears throat> so that should be – all Christians should be concerned about that. The second one is the protection of life at its beginning and end. Mm. I think if you're an Orthodox Christian, you're going to take that route. That doesn't mean the exact policy. Yeah. And I encourage my pastor who I think does a great job of emphasizing the Christian value to the congregation mm. and that the congregation's practice – the honoring of life at its beginning and end, and then they decide how they want to vote politically. Mm. So we just had a bus of 60 go to the life march on uh, in January. But uh, we, we sponsored the but, – but he didn't preach about uh, what policies ought to mm. – the government ought to take on that. There's a general affirmation of uh, the sanctity of life. Uh, the third one is, of course, care for the poor. And uh, conservative Christians sometimes uh, make a big mistake in not holding that up important, importantly. And, uh, uh, of course, 
Christ cared for the poor, mm. and we ought to care for the poor. That's, now, policies, it's difficult to sort those out, but there's some easy cases. People who are wounded in, in the war, we ought to give great support to them and their families, children. They didn't, they didn't choose to mm. be in dysfunctional families. So there are some easy cases, much more difficult cases when you get to able-bodied people. Uh, and then finally, uh, I added in my list uh, the support of uh, the traditional notion of marriage and the natural family. But I don't know if that's a political issue anymore. Hmm. Uh, I have one more question for okay. you. Okay. When you think about the future, and I know you're not a prognosticator necessarily, are you optimistic or pessimistic about America? Are you hopeful about the future or do you see a darker scenario? I think um, I'm fairly hopeful about uh, America. You know, American history has been a series of revivals. <clears throat> and as we look back, that era from the late 40s to the mid-50s was actually a great revival of religion in America. <clears throat> and now we await another revival. I don't have much of an idea mm -hmm. about how that's going to happen. But uh, one of the interesting things is while casual Christians seem to be departing, and it makes you think that Christianity is getting weaker in America. But there's good evidence. I just read an article with some good empirical evidence that the core of serious Christians is actually slowly expanding. Yeah. So that the Virginia study of family cultures that puts the faith group at 20 percent is probably expanding because we're now we know we're in a real struggle. <laughs> And the more serious ones want to be serious. So uh, there could be, again, and I think the culture is going to unravel. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But if that, that uh, minority of Christians really flourish with a counterculture, I think there's a good chance of uh, returning to our, our Christian values, um, wholesome values in, in this life. And I think a lot depends on uh, religious freedom. That's why a lot of Christians voted for Trump. They're just on basically on that ground. And uh, secondly, it depends on the quality of the kind of public arguments we make. Mm -hmm. And I'm very hopeful that we've got some interesting public intellectuals now. Ross Doubted, do you say Doubted? Yes, Doubted. And Dreyer? Mm -hmm. I mean, and Rusty Reno? Yep. People listen to them. And they're major intellectual players. So, you know, it's, I think we've got hope, yeah. A good word on which to close. My guest has been Dr. Robert Benny. He's the Jordan Trexler Professor of Religion Emeritus at Roanoke College, a distinguished Lutheran scholar, public theologian. We're so grateful to have you with us at Beeson Divinity School. Thank you for this conversation. It's been a delight. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast. <laughs>